Good morning. Turn with me to First um, Timothy, chapter one, verse twelve. This morning we're going to be looking at uh, Paul's testimony. You know, a lot of times we look at uh, Paul. We see what a you know brilliant man he was. What a courageous man. How how uh, strong. How motivated. How uh, how passionate he was. We're tempted to think, well, you know, of course God chose him. Of course God could use him. Just look at him. And we think of ourselves and we say, you know, I'm I'm not like Paul. I'm not that smart. I'm not that strong. I. Uh, uh, I'm not that motivated. I, I can't be like Paul. So God couldn't possibly use me like that. Well, I think what Paul wants to do in the passage that we're looking at is to set our thinking right, to show us just how far off the mark that type of thinking is. <clears throat> if you remember, last week Paul has been encouraging Timothy Put a stop to these teachers who are using the Old Testament improperly. They're, they're, they're teaching the law in, in, in the wrong way, in an unhealthy way. They're teaching that you have to, by your own efforts, kind of climb up the ladder by your obedience to the law. Get high enough on the ladder that God will accept you. God will, will pour His love out on you. And as Paul thinks about what he calls the glorious gospel of our blessed God, and he thinks about how blessed God really is, how good God is, how loving He is, how generous He is. And he thinks about himself and how God dealt with him. He realizes these guys don't have a clue. They don't know what they're talking about. They don't understand God's grace. And so that's why Paul shares his own experience with us to show us how it really works, to show us what God really does. So look with me starting at verse 12. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength or or empowered me, made me competent, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul says that he uh, thanks Jesus Christ, our Lord, who has given him the strength that, that Jesus considered him trustworthy, appointing him to his service. Now Paul starts by thanking the Lord because he recognizes that all that he is that's worthwhile, all that he is that's admirable, really is Jesus doing. Now, Paul doesn't say, I'm not strong. He is strong. But he says, it's Jesus Christ that strengthened me. See, in other places, Paul talks about his own weakness. But he always points out that when I am weak, then he is strong. His strength is perfected in our weaknesses. In in 2 Corinthians 3, Paul is talking about how we're just not adequate to be ministers of the new covenant. But then he points out immediately that God makes us adequate to be ministers, to serve others. See, Paul recognizes that all that he is is due to Jesus Christ. And so he gives thanks. All that Paul has to offer comes from Christ's work in him. Paul is not naturally like this. What Paul is and what Paul does is a product Jesus' work in his life, nothing more and nothing less. Paul marvels that Christ trusted him. He says, he considered me trustworthy. Now, the point Paul is making is not that that he was so trustworthy that God chose to trust him. The point he is making is that right at the moment when Paul was demonstrating how totally untrustworthy he was, God chose to trust him. Even though, as he says, he was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. But he was shown mercy. You see, you know, in, in spite of who he was, what he was doing, 
God showed him mercy. At the time of his conversion, Paul was out trying to kill as many Christians as he possibly could. That's what he was doing. He hated Christians. He hated Christ. That's why it's so amazing to Paul that God trusted him. It's pure grace. That's why it's such a a clear uh, example, a, 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 a clear message that we don't have to get our lives together, pretty it up, put it in a nice package and bring it to God to receive His love. We don't have to climb up that ladder. See, God took on Paul by His grace, poured out His grace on him and made him adequate to be His servant. Christ can take on the task taking you on and making you adequate, making you a powerful servant in his hands. Charles Colson, the uh, Nixon hitman during the Watergate years, tells of how he was ready to take on Congress. He was ready to take on the press. He was ready to take on the public. You know, he was a tough guy. He, uh, he had ruined people's careers and lives just because they got in his way. And he had ruined them with glee. He lied and cheated and he was proud of it. But then he tells how he sat in Doug Coe's driveway and just wept like a baby. Uncontrollably. Because he was faced with God's awesome grace, God's awesome love. God accepted him exactly like he was. Now, Colson is one of the most prominent spokespersons for Christianity in our society today. Paul tells us that he himself had been a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent man. Now, before his conversion, Paul was a very religious man. He wasn't a blasphemer like we would think. He was very careful not to use the Lord's name in vain. Not to speak against God. He was a very religious man. But he didn't know what he was doing. He acted out of ignorance. He thought what he was doing was right. He had all kinds of, uh, of religious, even biblical reasons for what he was doing. But now Paul realizes that in resisting Jesus Christ, in refusing to trust Jesus Christ... He was calling God a liar when God offered new life in Christ. He realized that's blasphemy, to call God a liar. And and that resistance to Jesus Christ made Paul a persecutor and a violent man. Now there are many of you here today who consider yourself religious people. You go to church, you know a lot of your Bible. But in your resistance to giving control of your life to Jesus Christ, you're in essence calling God a liar when he tells you that that is the key to life, to joy, to peace, to satisfaction, to truth, to integrity. In holding him off and saying, no, I don't believe it, you're calling God a liar. And the results are that you'll be a a, uh, persecutor and a violent man. They say, now, when have I been violent? I don't go around beating people up. Well, let me remind you of your last argument with your wife or your husband. It may not have gotten to physical violence, but consider the emotional violence. The word for violence that Paul uses here, hubristis, means to hurt someone in a way that grieves or shames them for no other purpose than to hurt them. Now, as a husband, you may be telling yourself that you're just demanding the submission that's due to you as the head of your household, like the Bible says. Or as a wife, you may be telling yourself that it's, it's, it's your husband's insensitivity, it's his godless habits that, that, that cause you to act the way you do toward him. Regardless of your religious or your biblical justifications, it's still violence. Or consider your actions towards your children. Again, you may be telling yourself, well, they should treat me with deference because I'm their parent, like the Bible says. But you're, 
emotional assaults really are coming out of your own selfishness and out of your own irritation. You're a persecutor, a violent person, justifying your behavior with your confused religious thinking. Let me say it again. Let me say it respectfully. Your, uh, your religious, your biblical reasoning notwithstanding, that you are a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent person. You're hurting, destroying the people you claim to love. But again, that's where Paul was, right there, when God poured his grace, showed him mercy is the way Paul said it. And that's our hope as well. Again, Paul points out that he was acting out of ignorance and unbelief. His selfish religious justifications, he thought, were right. He was convinced that he was doing what he needed to be doing. But that doesn't justify his behavior. That simply shows how messed up he really was. That simply shows how hopeless his situation was at the time that God poured out his mercy, that God showed him mercy. See, often... Being ignorant that we're doing the wrong thing is a far more desperate situation than when we know we're doing wrong. Because when we can justify it, when we can excuse it and got it all worked out, then those patterns are inescapable. They just stay in our lives. We don't look for the physician to find healing. To the degree that you can convince yourself that you got it all together, that you're okay, that your behavior is somebody else's fault. To that degree, you're all the more lost because the well don't look for a physician. Jesus said, I came to save not the righteous, but sinners. Like I said, the well don't look for a physician. Instead, like those who are HIV positive without knowing it, they just continue on spreading destruction in ignorance. Fortunately, the physician comes after us. That's what he did for Paul. Verse 14, the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. The word picture that Paul uses here is very vivid. The word for abundantly means to take something and to pour it into something else so much that it starts to fill up and then it starts to spill over and then it starts to splash all over the place and it spreads everywhere. But what Paul is saying that God loved him so completely, accepted him just as he was, trusted him when he was so untrustworthy, poured his love and his acceptance into Paul so much that it flooded over in faith and love. See, Paul was a man of enormous faith. Paul loved people uh, marvelously. Everyone who came in contact with Paul, was profoundly affected by his faith and by his love. But Paul said, that's not my doing. That's just God pouring his love, his grace into me so much that it spills out and it splashes all over everyone I come in contact with. It can't help it. He's filling me up so much. See, that's the key to the the great servant that Paul became, to the great man of God. There's no hint that he earned that grace, that somehow that Paul on the road to Damascus suddenly went, whoa, I'm blowing it. I gotta turn around. I gotta change my life. I gotta get things together here. And that he, he cleaned his life up and he came to God. That's not at all what happened. God poured his grace out on him while he was a mess. You see, that's what grace is. Undeserved. Love. And that grace then fills us to overflowing. God comes and He pours that grace on us while we're a mess. You see, faith, we, we don't, God's not calling us to, to, by our own fortitude, kind of stir up this faith. And, and then He'll pour His grace on us. And it's not that we are just so loving that he looks down on us and can't help but love us. Now what's going on? Faith is a response to his grace, not a way to earn it. Love 
is a result, not a reason. And what Paul experienced was that God, by His grace, turned His hatefulness into tender love. Not on Paul's fortitude, not on Paul all of a sudden understanding it better, but on God pouring His grace out. God can do that for you as well. We know that we should trust God, but then we look at our lives. We see how little faith we have, how we are constantly trying to take care of ourselves, to find our own satisfaction and fulfillment in money or things. We try to find peace by turning our minds off in front of the television set. We uh, are, are, are trying to, 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 to find meaning by pouring ourselves and burying ourselves in our work or in our families or in our hobbies. We just look around and all this is just too much to try to change. It's too hard. The mountain is too high. We know we should love, especially our families, those close to us. But Then we look at our lives and we see how much we manipulate those around us to meet our needs. How, how we use our, our spouses or our children or our parents for our own needs, for our own satisfaction. We want to change everybody so that they will meet our desires. We recognize that we don't really have the initiative to go out and, and reach out to those we know that are hurting or, or to, to minister, to serve in the church or in com- our community. We know we should love, but it's just too hard just too much. The mountain is too high. When we think about coming to God, or maybe returning to God, to coming back to God, and again, it feels like what He wants is just too big. It's too much. The mountain is too high. Well, here is the good news. Listen to it. Hear this. The mountain is indeed too high. You cannot climb it. But if you trust God, He will come and He'll pick you up and He'll take you to the top of the mountain and seat you there with Him in Christ where you can experience Him, experience His love, Experience His delight. Experience the peace of being accepted entirely, completely, just as you are. Accepted by Him. And as you sit there, resting in His arms, His grace overflows in you. His love begins to spill out into faith in your life. It begins to spill over and splash around on the people around you as you love them selflessly, as you, as you give yourself away because God has given Himself so completely to you. See, this is the gospel. It's what it's all about. The particulars are that God demonstrated His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. By that death and His subsequent resurrection, He made it possible for the Father to pour His grace out on us. Christ, by His death, paid for your sins. And by His life, His righteousness is given to you freely in place of your sinfulness. So that you can come to the Father and be with Him and experience that grace. Not based on anything you did or didn't do but based solely on what Christ did on the cross. All He asks of you is that you believe that, that you accept it, that you enjoy it. Ephesians 2.18 For through Him we have access to the Father. Hebrews 4.16 Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace. See, accept what Jesus has done. And then exactly as you are right now, walk into the Father's presence and humbly receive that overflowing love, overflowing grace. 
a couple of weeks ago, I was going through a time where I was feeling very distant from God. I wasn't uh, spending much time with Him in the Word. I wasn't praying much. I was feeling tired. I was feeling discouraged. As I thought about coming back and, and, and getting close to God again, the mountain just seemed so high. I just too much to deal with. And I felt the weight of that whole mountain was on me. So one day uh, in the afternoon, late afternoon, I took off on a motorcycle just to go think about this mountain and complain to God about it. But as I pulled off the side of the road to think about what to do, I, I, I sat down, I turned to God, and there he was, right beside me. I didn't have to climb any mountains. He was already there. I was already at the top of the mountain. All I needed to do was to turn to him. It was that simple. There was no recrimination, no guilt, no saying, oh, you again. He was delighted. He just poured his love out on me. I just sat there with him, opened my Bible, and just enjoyed that time with him. You see, that is the gospel in which we live, the glorious gospel. Romans 5, 2. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. As Paul thinks about his own experience, he comes to one clear deduction, verse 15. He says, Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Here's something you can count on. Here's something you can base your life on. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's what Christ came for. That's what it's all about. He came to save sinners like you and like me. He came to give us access to the Father so that we could experience that grace, His love which is what we are created for, which is what our heart's deepest longing is for. It is the only thing that can satisfy our souls. Jesus came to save sinners. And Paul says, when it comes to sinners, I am the worst. Now, in objective uh, fact, I'm not sure that Paul was the worst sinner that ever lived. But as Paul looks at his life, and he compares that to God's awesome love. There's no other conclusion that he can come to emotionally. And notice he says that he is a sinner, not that he was a sinner. Paul is a sinner saved by grace. That's the way he looks at himself. He realizes that there is still sin within him. There's still a struggle. He realizes that his continued access to that love of the Father is still dependent on what Jesus Christ did. That his usefulness as a servant is still dependent on Christ's enabling. See, Paul realizes his dependence. He's a sinner saved by grace. And there's no room for pride there. The awareness of sin precludes it. So Paul doesn't fall into the trap of uh, of pride at his own accomplishments. But at the same time, he doesn't fall into the trap on the other side of a a kind of morbid preoccupation, a self-preoccupation with his sinfulness. Now, when Paul thinks of his sin and God's incredible grace, he just marvels at what a great God that he has. What a wonderful, giving God. And he's filled with joy at being loved so unconditionally. You see, Paul is a sinner saved by grace. And the constant knowledge of that is the source in his life of his joy and his worship. Skip down to verse 17. See how he responds to all of this. He says, now unto the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. See, that's the praise of a sinner saved by grace. That's exactly what we are, sinners saved by grace. Recently I was talking to a person who 
told me that coal is full of hypocrites. All I could do was smile and say, that's true. <laughs> and I'm one of the worst. You know, we are hypocrites. We are people who are at times angry, at times judgmental, at times uh, struggling sexually, at times insensitive, gossips. We take no pride in this, but we are no better than anyone else. Worse than some, actually. We are sinners saved by grace. And in Christ, God loves us. And He is delighted with us. And by His Spirit, He uses us. And by His grace, He is changing us and freeing us to become more like Him. See, I can't look down on anyone. But I can look up and know how much God loves me. And that changes everything. Titus 3, 5. According to His mercy, He has saved us by the washing of rebirth and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Now take a look at what Paul says in, in verse 16. But for that very reason, since he was a sinner, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display His unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on Him and receive eternal life. See, Paul claims that that's the precise reason that he was saved. So that the rest of us wouldn't think that we were too bad, too defiled, too messed up to ever come to God. So you may be an angry husband. You may be an unloving wife. You may be addicted to pornography or, or tobacco or alcohol or drugs. You may be a workaholic at work or in the things you volunteer for. And as you look at your life, you just say, ah, it's too much, it's too big, it's too hard. I could never be different. I could never clean myself up and change myself. God could never love me. Paul stands before us and he says, rubbish. God could do it for me. He can sure do it for you. See, Paul is an example. Paul is proof positive for all who would believe. Now, there are many here who would love to believe, but you just can't. You, you, you want to trust God, but you just struggle. You feel His call, maybe even now. You just can't. Maybe... Uh, Maybe you've got too many intellectual problems with the Bible. There are parts of it you just don't buy. Parts you don't understand. Or maybe uh, you just don't like Christians. These are formidable obstacles. God doesn't call on you to overcome those obstacles before you can come to Him. All He asks is for you to trust Him. Turn to Him. Accept His grace, His love that will be poured out on you. And if you trust Him, He'll take care of the rest. He'll open your eyes. You'll see things as they are. If you trust Him, let Him pour His grace out. By His Spirit, He'll teach you. He'll show you. He'll affect your thinking. See, Paul was not converted intellectually. His intellectual understanding didn't come till later. Or maybe you're feeling God's pull on you, the Spirit calling you, but the enemy is saying, no, you don't deserve it. You've pushed God away too many times. You've hurt too many people. You don't deserve it. Well, that's true. Neither did Paul. And that's what grace is all about. It is, by definition, undeserved. Maybe your flesh is saying, no, it's, it's too hard. I've got too many wounds from childhood, too many confused ways of, of dealing with life, too many fears. I could never get my life together and, 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 and earn God's favor, earn God's love. Well, you're absolutely right. You are a mess. That's exactly where Paul was. And God poured His grace out on him. And empowered him to become his servant.
You see, that same God that did it for Paul can do it for you. Paul stands, places himself as an example, and he says, whatever it is that's keeping you from what your heart really longs for, from knowing God, experiencing His grace, whatever it is, take a look at me. If God could do it for me, as messed up as I was, as unbelieving as I was, God can sure do it for you. Now, if you would believe, if that's a desire of your heart, you feel the Spirit calling you, there's no possible reason to resist. There is no possible reason to delay. Yield to the Spirit right now. Trust Him. Let Him lift you to the top of that mountain and seat you with Himself in Christ. Let Him pour His love into you. Let Him show you His His acceptance, His delight with you, exactly as you are. Let Him give you His full, undivided attention. Now trust Him. And He lifts you up and seats you in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. That's exactly what He wants to do. In fact, let me uh, just take a second stop and pray for any of you who would believe but are struggling. Let's pray. Lord, tear down the resistance of any here whom you're calling. Give them courage by your Spirit. Give them the faith to trust you and believe your grace. Thank you that you've done all that's necessary by sending your Son to die in their place so that that they uh, don't have to remain dead but can experience life with you. Take their lives and make them yours so that they can experience eternal life, knowing you. Break them right now, God. Show them their sin, even as you flood them with your grace. And may they give you the glory forever and ever. If that is the desire of your heart, let me uh, encourage you just to turn to him to give up, to accept His grace, know His pleasure. Tell Him that you are a sinner in need of His grace and let Him flood you with that love and acceptance. Amen. If you did accept His grace, if you did quit fighting Him today, well, welcome. Things will never be the same. You are a new creature. You have started a new life of, uh, of coming to understand all the riches, all that's yours in Christ Jesus. And if that's where you are right now this morning, let me encourage you to ignore the rest of my sermon. Instead, take the rest of the time we have for teaching and just sit there with your Lord at the top of the mountain, worshiping Him for His love and for His grace. Just enjoy Him. Focus on Him quietly in your heart where you sit. For the rest of us, I want to uh, point out a, a couple more things. First, notice that Paul's message here is his testimony. Often that is your most powerful message. Every once in a while, somebody will bring a friend or relative to me and want me to share the gospel with them. And it's always my delight to share the gospel. But quite honestly, uh, with some of my explanations and elaborations, I just confuse people. What, uh, what that person really needed was for the one who was bringing them to just tell them what God did in their lives. That's the message. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 3.15, Always be ready to give an answer with meekness and respect to everyone who asks the reason for the hope that is in you. It doesn't need to be elaborate. In fact, the less elaborate, the better, usually. I I like the model of the um, blind man in John 9. 
the Pharisees came to him and were trying to argue with him and give him a bad time. And he said simply, all I know is once I was blind, now I can see. That's the message. That's what you have to give to people. What Jesus Christ has done for you. And as you share that simple message, they will be encouraged to take the risk to trust him themselves. And at the same time, you'll be reminded of his grace toward you. And it will, again, flood your heart with gratitude. Well, let's uh, just finish up our passage. <clears throat> Let me quickly read verses 18 through 20. Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by following them you may fight the good fight, holding on to faith and a good conscience. Some have rejected these, and so have shipwrecked their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. <clears throat> Excuse me. There's a lot of neat stuff in there. Uh, I don't want to take time for much of it. Uh, a lot of stuff like about um, Timothy being uh, receiving his charge through prophecy. Now, I don't think that's as unusual as it may at first sound. What probably was going on, a group of leaders, including some with the gift of prophecy, gathered to consider, to talk about, pray about what was going on in Ephesus. And as they got together and they spent time in prayer before the Lord, God made it clear that Timothy was his man for that job. So they sent him off to Ephesus. Paul took him there and then moved on. But Paul wants to remind Timothy that he's there because God put him there. What he's doing, he's doing for God. And these guys, Hymenaeus and Alexander, uh, they show up later on in, in Scripture. They're pretty much always bad guys whenever they show up. They never quite got the message. There's a lot of interesting stuff. Uh, Paul says that he he delivered them over to Satan so that they would be taught not to blaspheme. Well, again, what was going on was these guys were teaching that you had to climb the mountain yourself. And and for us, that, that, that doesn't sound like blasphemy. When they say, you need to obey God, you need to, to follow the, 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 the Ten Commandments, you need to follow... Uh, you know the, the 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 Old Testament sounds like honoring God, but what they would do, what they were doing, was blaspheming God by saying His grace was not sufficient; that it had to be their effort. And when Paul says that he delivered them over to Satan, that, that what he's referring to, and this comes up in in First uh, Corinthians five and and uh, in other places, is is that he he put them out of the fellowship because they refused to stop fighting, to stop pushing for this legalism. And he put them out of the fellowship where Satan has a chance to beat us up. Quite honestly, we need each other. And when we get out away from each other, that we are less able to uh, to take the onslaughts, the attacks of the enemy. We become more confused, less able to hold on to the truth, more uh, weary more despairing. And Paul's goal was to put them out, to let them try to do it on their own. Let them try to, 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 by their own efforts, earn God's favor so that they would learn that it's got to be grace. And they would come back and say, no, I've seen myself and I know it's got to be grace. But what I really want to focus on <clears throat> is what Paul tells Timothy to keep his attention on. You see, you know, it's true that it is God who lifts us to the top of the mountain. We don't have to climb. But there are some things that we need to give our attention to. In fact, Paul says some have rejected these, like these two guys, and have shipwrecked their faith. They've crashed and burned because they haven't paid attention to these principles. Now, these aren't things that we do to earn God's favor. We already have God's favor. These are keys to enjoying it. These aren't how we come into a relationship with God. We already have a relationship with God because of what Christ did. These are keys to enjoying that relationship. And that when we fail to, 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 to understand these things and, and give attention to these things, 
our, we shipwreck our faith. And it's no fun. Now, what are these basic principles that I'm talking about? Well, first of all, notice that Paul says, well, let me, let me read the verse first, and then you can notice. But Paul tells Timothy, fight the good fight, holding on to faith and a good conscience. First of all, he says that we're in a fight. Now, that's not a very good translation because the word there doesn't stand for a fight. It, 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 it refers to a campaign, a series of battles, a prolonged campaign. Life is a prolonged campaign. We're engaged in a fight, in struggles, in battles. But Paul says that's a good fight. The word he uses is for beautiful, valuable, necessary. You see, we are involved in struggles. It won't be easy. There will be hard challenges. But as we walk into those, holding on to faith and a good conscience, we grow. That's the context in which we see God's grace poured out in our lives. And we come to understand the riches that are ours in Christ. And so it's a good fight. But the key is holding on to faith and a good conscience. As we go through life dealing with our own uh, hurts, wounds, our own struggles with sin, our loneliness... Um, our needs. And it's easy to lose sight of faith and a good conscience. We begin to feel like the, the weight is shifting back to us, that the, 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 the mountain is there for us to climb. We've got to climb it. We need to pray more. We need to study our Bibles more. We need to sin less. Well, these are very good things. These are things we really want and are valuable. But faith brings us back to the fact that God has already taken care of everything we need in Jesus. Holding on to faith is coming back and remembering this over and over and trusting Him to lift us back to the top of that mountain, to receive His grace, which fills us up and spills out into our lives as faith changes our behavior, changes the way we look at life, affects us. It's never the other way around. So so holding on to faith is to continue to come back to Him, realizing that God has already taken care of it. And faith is believing that in the face of our emotions and our feelings and our unfulfilled desires. Believing that right now, just as I am, I can sit at peace with God and know His pleasure, know His delight in me. And keeping a good conscience is critical. Again, as we go through the battles of life, there are times when we uh, don't trust God, when we take things into our own hands, when we uh, act unlovingly, when when we refuse to do what we know He's calling us to do. And what's necessary to keep a good conscience is to come back again to God, confess our failures, remember His forgiveness that He's already accomplished, accept His empowering to go out and do what He's calling us to do. This is a constant process. Unfortunately, what happens is after we blow it, or after we failed many times in the same area, we begin to, to start feeling like God is probably too disgusted with me. He's tired of this. I know I am, so God must be. God is, is probably too disappointed because I am so weak. He's too disappointed for me to come to Him and to talk these things over with Him. And so we begin to cover up. We begin to hide from the knowledge that He's calling us to stop doing something or or to do something else. And this is deadly because we're covering up from Him. We're turning our face away from Him and we're losing our resource. That is the awareness of His overwhelming, overflowing, transforming grace that fills us up and flows out. It's just deadly 
Because what happens then is we slip deeper, deeper into sin and despair. We crash and burn. We shipwreck our faith. But as we learn to come back to Him and once again have our consciences cleansed by the blood of the Lamb, we also discover that He strengthens us to go out and do what He's calling us to do. See, this is is what Christian maturity is all about. Growing more sensitive to the leading of His Spirit and learning to step out in obedience knowing that He will empower us. A lot of times that's a, it's a leap of faith. You step out in obedience knowing that the, the empowerment, the ability, the courage, the words, the wisdom, all that's necessary is going to be there when you get there. But you don't see it up front. You step out believing and you obey and you discover that it's already there. See, that's what Christian maturity is. And holding on to, to faith and a good conscience is trusting God enough to keep coming back, remembering that He's already taken care of it. He's the one that lifts me to the top of the mountain. Remembering His forgiveness and then stepping out boldly in obedience as He supplies that power. Well, I want to stop talking. Um, I thought it would be appropriate to uh, conclude this by having one of our elders share his testimony. You know, a lot of times uh, people tend to look at Christian leaders or elders, think that they're a different uh, breed of spiritual animal, kind of like we sometimes look at Paul. The fact is our elders and leaders are just like Paul and just like you and just like me. Sinners saved by grace. So I ask one of our elders, my good friend, Jerry Burt, if he would come up and just briefly share his testimony with us. Thanks, Chris. Good morning. For those of you that don't know me very well, I'm 52 years old. I've been married to my wife, Melinda, for 28 years. I've gone to Cole Community for 23 years. I uh, grew up in Boise. We have four children, one grandchild and one grandchild on the way. And uh, I've worked in the grocery industry around Boise for the last 35 years. I guess other than the fact that uh, my mother had been divorced and twice and married three times by the time I was 10 years old, uh, the first 15 years of my life were relatively normal. I did a lot of hunting and fishing. I uh, was involved real heavily in Boy Scouts. I went to Sunday school on Sunday morning. I sang in the choir, and I went to Methodist Youth Fellowship on Wednesday evenings to, uh, to for something to do in the week, and I really had a lot of good friends. When I was 15, I... Uh, I started running around with a pretty rough crowd at school, and things started to change. I started to turn my back on my friends. Uh, the only things that became important to me were cars, girls, parties, alcohol, and those type of things. And uh, before I knew it, I had dropped out of high school or dropped out of uh, Sunday school and quit Boy Scouts with only two merit badges left to uh, become Eagle. I had turned my back on my friends and and. Uh, in the second semester of my senior year of high school, I quit school so that I could uh, work more hours to pay for a car and a new car I'd bought and uh, support the lifestyle that I'd become accustomed to. I guess the next 15 years pretty much went along the same course, other than the fact that I did go back and finish high school, and I did manage to get two years of college in before I got drafted into the Army. By the time I got back from the service, I was pretty well addicted to alcohol, and, and I was beginning to wonder, you know, is this really, is this really what, uh, what life's all about? I began to have a lot of questions. That year I met Melinda, and uh, we decided to get married, and I thought, man, this will be it. This will really fix me up. I'll have someone to love me. Uh, I'll help, we'll start a family. I'll have kids. I had a good job, and I thought, this all this will make me real responsible, and, and uh, everything will be great. Well, I was wrong. Uh, after five years of marriage, 
Melinda decided she'd had enough of, uh, of me and my ways and uh, started divorce proceedings. After being, uh, well, I remember that that year was really a high time in my life. I, you know, I would, thought things were going great with Melinda and I, and and I was enjoying our two children then, and and uh, had a good job. I just got a big promotion. I'd just uh, taken the largest mountain goat in the state of Idaho with my bow and arrow. I uh, we were had a new house uh, being built. We were going to move into, and uh, she jerked the carpet, and it really really put me down. After being separated for several months, uh, we did get back together. Melinda just thought about it, and she didn't really want to raise the children without their father. And I, uh, I gave her some good promises on, on how things would be better. She had started tending a coal uh, while we were separated. And in order to make her think that I was really going to try and, and make our marriage better, I started tending with them, something to do with the family. And uh, the more I attended, the more I started hearing uh, things that were appealing to me. And I wondered if uh, if uh, this uh, Jesus and uh, a personal relationship with him might might be where it's at. In those days, we had a, an altar call quite a bit after after the service. And, and I remember just really being moved to come forward and, and find out what it was all about. But I was always able to uh, force myself to stay in the seat and uh, you know I'd think of all kinds of good questions like you know what do they think of hunting what will I have to do you know am I good enough how much money will I have to give all those type of things you know just kept me from from doing it Uh, we used to have a, a visitation program too where the elders or some of the men would go out and visit homes and we had several calls and I was always able to uh to uh, put them off, but uh, one week I decided, well, we might as well find out what this is all about, and you know, see what they want. They probably want me to start giving money or something like that, you know. Well, that evening or Tuesday evening, uh, Harden Young and, and Olaf Wiedemann visited our home, and through the course of the evening, Harden shared with me the Four Spiritual Laws book, and I finally realized what a sinner I was and how much I needed Jesus. So I said a prayer with Harden that night and asked Christ into my life. And I did become a new creature in Christ, and and uh, I did start a new a new life in Him. Uh, the last 22 years haven't been a piece of cake, but they've been good. God really has uh, poured out His grace on me abundantly, and I thank Him daily for for His love for me. And uh, it's just been just been good. And I'd like to encourage you if you uh, said that prayer with Chris this morning to. Uh, to just really, really start that new life good. And if you're still sitting out there this morning like I was and, and feeling like there might be something there and you want to find out, do it today. Don't wait. It's a, it's a great life and you'll enjoy it. If, uh, if uh, you want to come forward this morning and talk to somebody, Chris and I will be here. Or if you can't do it this morning, Please call uh, one of the staff or elders in the bulletin and, and uh, make an appointment with them and, and get on the get on the path. Thank you.